Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Bill Graham. Woo! And a special guest with us today to talk about the new film, Shirley, it's Alyssa Wilkinson. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I am pretty good. <laughs> awesome. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listenership? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm Alyssa. I am the film critic at Vox.com. Vox with a V, as I always like to specify. And <laughs> I also teach criticism and film studies and cultural theory and stuff like that at the King's College in Manhattan. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today again to talk about the movie Shirley, uh, the newest film from Josephine Decker. It stars Elizabeth Moss primarily, uh, and I'll just wait until we uh, get deeper in to give the rest of the cast. Before we do all of that, uh, the usual stuff up top, you could follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Give us a comment and a rating on iTunes or email us podcast at The Film Stage Dot com. We are brought to you by our fine patrons. If you would like to become one of them, go to patreon.com slash the film stage show for as little as $1 an episode. You get access to our super cool Slack channel where we talk about everything under the sun, not just movies. And uh, in these trying times, could we all not use a community that is specifically geared towards our interests? Uh, all right. <clears throat> Again, that is patreon.com slash the film stage show. We are also brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service uh, available now. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. It's guaranteed to be either a movie you love or a movie you've been dying to see, one you've never heard of before. There will always be something new to discover. Not only that, but unlike some algorithm-based crapshoots that are out there in streaming service land, with Mubi, every film is hand-selected. So you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch. And instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. And you can try Mubi for free for 30 days by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Uh, one of the new films that they have on there is uh, in commemoration of Chantal Ackerman who uh, would have just turned 70. They are showing two films by the groundbreaking director that represent her remarkable range, uh, along with a documentary about her life. So make sure that you're checking that out. The first up is Almer's Folly. So again, mubi.com slash filmstage. This is usually the time where we do a COVID corner update to talk about how we all are doing we will be alighting over that as the world has caught on fire and so much stuff is going on. Uh, times have somehow become even more trying than we were expecting. If you out there in listener land 
are curious, feeling powerless, uh, unaware, underinformed, don't know what to do. We wanted to highlight a specifically good resource for people out there. It's blacklivesmatters.card.co, and that is card with two R's. So again, blacklivesmatters.card.co. It is a great amalgamation of resources to help you get a handle on what's going on and also places where you can go to specifically take action to impact the world for the better. Again, that is Black Lives Matters with an S dot card with two R's dot co. It's really helpful too in terms of uh, if you're looking for specific locations and you know if you if you don't just want to if you don't want to just uh, you know donate to a larger city there are also uh, links for a number of other places you know that might be uh, closer to home um, in v- various ways so yeah that resource is is really really helpful and easy to use indeed. And thus, we come to the main event, our review of Shirley, the brand new film that is presently streaming for free on Hulu and is available for rent on many other VOD platforms. This film is by Josephine Decker, who we previously discussed when talking about Madeline's Madeline. The film stars Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson, Michael Stuhlbarg as her husband, and Odessa Young and Logan Lerman It's a young couple that come to stay with the now reclusive author uh, in the, I believe, the 50s. Yeah, it seems like the 50s, but I'm not sure that totally fits with the – so the Hangzaman, the book they talk about, is in uh, 1951. Yes. Um, Um, So we're going to talk a lot about, I assume, the history – of everything that goes into this movie because this movie is a fascinating little amalgamation of fact and fiction and uh i just i can't wait to talk about it because uh no matter what you felt about it because we don't know what each other felt about it i am certain that everything that we uh there is to dig into is going to make make for a great conversation but yes uh before we of course talk here is a little snippet of the trailer to our suffering, my dear. There's not enough scotch in the world for that. <laughs> Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> well, you were invited to stay here for a few days until we could find a place. Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. I read your story. What are you doing here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible. All right. That is the trailer for Shirley. Again, out now streaming for free with subscription on Hulu and a bunch of other VOD platforms. uh, If you're down to rent it and don't have Hulu. Again, it's a story of Shirley Jackson, her husband, who put up a young couple, uh, the husband of whom is beginning to be a teaching assistant at Bennington College in Vermont. And uh, the way that the two impact one another, I feel, is the safest way to describe the plot from there. (laughs) We, of course, begin, as always, with our nutshell reviews before we move into spoilers. And let us begin with our guest, Alyssa. What did you think of Shirley? Oh, I I really loved it. When I saw it, the description on the um, program for Sundance when the selection came out, I thought, oh, 
boy, this is a movie for me. Um, <laughs> but it turned out it actually was, which was a good thing. And then, you know, I sat back in January at the festival and then I rewatched it before reviewing it and it got better the second time around. Awesome. Michael Snydell. Yeah, this is, this is, I, I found this at times more interesting to think about than uh, whether I enjoyed it or not. I, I, I find it interesting that this kind of fits uh, in a middle place between kind of writer biopics and destructive marriage movies. And and I think that gives a little bit sense of the texture you're dealing with and, you know, maybe a touch of persona as well. <laughs> um, and I, I think that Decker is someone who I, I really love the kind of risky ways she's playing with the ways kind of performance and uh, specifically mental illness kind of intersect with each other. Like Madeline's Madeline was a, a very theatrical and potentially exploitative film if it wasn't also completely about uh, the character's agency um, in my experience. So I, I again find this film really interesting in the way that it goes back and forth in between feeling, you know, like cruel and then having almost these like episodes of like profundity, like it, it's a very strange, uh, there's a very strange like delivery style uh, Moss here is, you know, working with almost this Tennessee Williams Southern Gothic, um, Southern Gothic like uh, quality to her performance. And there's a lot of just uh, like a very, unreliable atmosphere here and um i i don't know if i personally feel it all comes together but i like the ways that these elements kind of continually like kind of uh prickle <laughs> at each other uh it, it's not a super nice uh movie but it's it's also not exactly obtuse so it's it really is just kind of a, a strange amalgamation of uh, of things, but it's it's interesting to talk about uh, for sure. All right, Bill Graham. Yeah, I feel like uh, there's been a, quite a few films that I've said this will be interesting to talk about lately, um, but yeah, this will be interesting to talk about. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't know whether I was going to like this movie about halfway in. And that's a, that's a rough time to kind of figure out whether you are enjoying it or not. Um, it does pick up its pace. And I think that's because we kind of get into the surely kind of opens up a little bit as a character. Um, but yeah, it was, it was difficult to, to stomach for a little while. And, you know, I want to be clear that I, I, you know, it's not that she's necessarily difficult. I feel like writing in particular is such a pie in the sky kind of idea for a lot of people that it's really hard to bring that across on the screen. And so um, I think that's where some of my issues lie. But, you know, uh, I'm I'm not that into uh, people that can barely get out of bed in the morning um, or, or by midday or by four o'clock either. Um, but, 
you know, why are you attacking me, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> I was about um, to say, that is literally almost everyone who listens to this podcast right now. Um, it is what it is. Uh, but I mean, we're in a very specific situation, but yeah, I, I won't, I won't, uh, divulge too much more. Uh, yeah, I ultimately ended up coming around to enjoying this movie, but it is different. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. As for myself, I mean, I, <laughs> I, um, when I, when I was talking about this movie the other day with uh, Michael Snydell, I said, I'm really looking forward to watching this because just the tagline makes me think that it's like a cross between mother and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I could feel Michael Snydell die inside when I said that. Um, and I think that that, it holds up a little bit. I am, I'm interested to talk more in spoilers about the ways in which that becomes a thing. But, uh, yeah, I uh, I found the texture of this movie to be really great. I found the way that it affected my mood to be pretty great as well. I'm not sure. I'm looking forward to talking about it, as I do with a lot of films. Um, I feel like that will help to solidify my opinions. But I, I quite enjoyed it. And it, it made me eager to read more of Shirley Jackson's work, because I don't know how much y'all have read, but I have, I've only ever read The Lottery. A Same. short story Same. that I that I really like, <laughs> and for some reason I just never moved beyond that. Um, <laughs> Alyssa, have you I'm read ashamed. much of Jackson's oh, work? Yes, yeah, like, I've read a couple of her novels, including Hangsman and some of her short work, and then I've read her the biography of her as well that came out a couple years ago. That's kind of the definitive one. So. Um, there is a sense in which if you've seen Shirley, you have a much better sense of what it's like to read a Shirley Jackson novel um, than <laughs> you would if you had just seen a biopic, because it's very, very similar in feel to Hangsman in particular, um, if that tells you anything at all. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think it does. And I think that that's one of the things that I liked most about the movie, because when I first heard about it, without seeing the poster or the trailer or anything. Um, I just was like very curious because when, if you pitch it to me in the broadest possible way without any context, I was like, is this like one of those movies that I used to watch in like school where it's like, what if Beethoven had a best friend who was like a seven year old boy, you know, it was like, <laughs> am I going to be getting a weird like tour through this woman's life through this fake couple? And so uh, imagine my shock and delight when I found that uh, I hope to God that this is nothing like what her real life was. <laughs> her husband's well, such an asshole. <laughs> I mean, that Sorry, could be true, but I feel like there. the rest of it maybe like, you know, I don't know. It's again, I as a person who I I'm so glad, Alyssa, that you were on uh, considering everything that you just said about having read Hangsman <laughs> and the, the biography, because I like after this movie was over just immediately took to the internet and was just like, all right, let's learn everything we can about as much as we can. So I don't make an ass of myself on this podcast. Um, <laughs> one of the first things I did was I was like, Bennington college sounds familiar. And I realized that that's um, where Brett Easton Ellis went. And that's like the college that he kind of based the college in uh, less than zero and uh, the rules of attraction on. And also apparently Justin Thoreau went there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it was a women. It was women's college when mm -hmm. um, Stanley Hyman taught there. Uh, Shirley Jackson's husband. Um, I, I mean, I think it bears saying right at the beginning that this movie is not based on her biography. It's based on a novel. 
um, about a fictionalized version of Shirley Jackson. So like a lot of the stuff that's happening in it did happen in her life, but a lot of it didn't happen till long after the period that the movie is set in. Like for instance, at this point they would have had four children and not been living in Bennington. So there's just a lot that doesn't (laughs) happen in the movie because of that. Um, I have not read the novel, Shirley, I should say that, uh, but I I understand they even kind of fiddled with that novel. So, you know, we're m- multiple degrees away from the real Shirley Jackson, um, which I think is part of why I love it, because I just find biopics to be almost uniformly awful or boring or just pointless. Like, if you can read it in a biography, why do I need to see it in a movie? So I love that this tries to do something else. Um, and that the something else is make you feel like you under like you've been inside Shirley Jackson's head. Um, but like, for instance, you know, she she did develop a, a pretty severe agoraphobia, but it was quite late in her life. She died, I think, when she was 48. Um, and it was in the last couple years of her life. And this is set at least 15 years before that. So um, it's sort of a detail that they borrowed from her biography but they moved it earlier um into her life in order for the story to work so i got i got a question about agoraphobia and and stuff like that specifically like and this is more joking than anything but like what was keeping them from just letting her go to sleep and then quietly move her to maybe the party like the the house that the party is in and then just get her dressed up and then bring her downstairs are you talking right? about like, like a weekend at bernie's kind of <laughs> like what the hell is that <laughs> i'm just saying like you could quietly move them while they're asleep bill that is the then, most uh, horrifying a, idea that i've ever heard in my long and horror don't know how life. often you've tried to move a sleeping person to an entire other house and then change their clothes without them noticing. It's hard enough with I'm not, I'm not talking about their clothes. They can get they can get dressed by themselves. So okay, I, wait. I just need to talk through this. You oh, want to no. you want to <laughs> while she is asleep, keep her asleep. Covertly move her to a, another human being's house. Say hello. This is my sleeping wife. We're gonna put her in another room with a set of clothing and hope that when she wakes up, rather than call the cops. <laughs> she is going to get dressed and attend this party, even though she again has crippling agoraphobia. Yeah. That's yeah. the stupidest. I mean, <laughs> you know, and social anxiety. I mean, that was the whole point, you know, not, I don't know at what point it's okay to talk about specific plot points, but like, I feel like we're at, you know, at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, um, <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot going on with with Shirley in the movie Shirley. And it's actually interesting that you brought up the concept of them moving things around in her life cuz one of the reasons that I had uh, a moment of oh my god, I don't know when this movie takes place is that um Paula Jean Weldon who is the disappearance that kind of uh influences Shirley in this movie took place in uh she disappeared in uh 1946. And I think the lottery was published in uh, 1948. So even just yes. the fact that Rose is able to read the lottery doesn't really sync up with the fact that Paula Jean Weldon's disappeared flyer is still hanging up on campus. Right. And and Hangs a Man is not 
like actually the the um I was gonna say narrator, that's wrong. The protagonist of Hangzaman is not Paula Jean Weldon, although you might get that impression from watching this film. Um <laughs> but is a different a girl named Natalie Waite, who kind of like has a traumatic event happen to her. She's also heading off to a small progressive women's college. Then she starts to have these like experiences with this girl who you slowly start to wonder if the girl actually exists. And like, that's the, that's the film or sorry, that's the book. So it's this very like kind of slippery slide into a mind that has been disintegrating, but you kind of don't know that it's very much a, um, it's an unreliable narrator novel, which I personally think is just the greatest kind of novel. Um, But, you know, the film is really trying to, I think, embody a lot of what is going on in that novel through these other characters, one of whom like literally doesn't exist. The character of Rose, um, the the Nemsers are not real people. Although the, the Hyman Jackson household often had people living with them in Bennington, but that was much later and it wasn't the same situation at all. They're, they're completely invented. I am um, just aesthetically to talk about the film, since we're talking about the Nemsers and uh, the Hyman Jackson household and people living with them. I, the, this, this movie has many unimpeachable qualities. Um, even though like my feelings on the plot and how it all hangs together may still be in formulation. I could say like upfront the aesthetics, the cinematography, the way the camera moves and immerses you in this world. And just the production design of that house is so specific and so real. And I mentioned like how I was in love with the texture of this film. Like that's all, that's all there. I have been to houses that are like this and I have seen couples that are like this (laughs) and it was almost uncomfortable the level of reality that they get. Um, even though it is, uh, I think, as, as Michael said, sometimes uh, elevated to gothic extremes. Yeah. I wouldn't say southern gothic because it does take place in Vermont. But, you know, who boy. I think I was just trying to, uh, to be clear, I just was kind of expressing there's just a hothouse atmosphere there. Yeah. That that kind of very much reminded me of this certain, you know, like southern legacy. I, and I think like. I think it's interesting you're you're talking about the production design and the formal aspects here because, you know, it's not like Madeline's – Madeline's Madeline was, uh, you know, perhaps even more abstract. But it was very interesting that literally this film starts with these extreme close-ups with no context and this uh, soft focus that like – you know, it, it it doesn't really let up. Like it's happy to let these characters almost be smudged out to the to the point you know where you know the what i'm implying to be the natalie character from hingsman doesn't even have a have a face mm-hmm. and and i think that stuff is is really really effective um yeah just to kind of piggyback of what what you were saying there brian yeah and the in the just just the way that the camera is so close um, I really, I really, it was arresting that the, when they first arrive at the house and there's just all these people there and all this noise and, uh, it was, I just like, I have arrived at kind of like salon parties like that. Um, and just been overwhelmed in that way of how everyone seems to know each other and everyone's in the middle of a conversation. There are people running around and especially in that kind of like 
the 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 diminishing light of the twilight and the coming evening and i was just it was like josephine decker when when i watched madeline's madeline i was like i'm not 100 on board with everything this movie is doing but this you know director is just like uh really pitching heat and in this movie it's just like she's doubled down and it's just amazing yeah i couldn't think of a better match than uh of director and and uh subject i guess when i i thought oh yeah perfect because i don't know there's something really hard about creating that feeling of unease i Mm -hmm. it feels like i so i talked to josephine last week about this um just interviewing her about the the trickiness of making an unreliable narrator work in film because people are still very much trained to imagine that whatever they're seeing on screen is kind of like either it's accurate from one person's perspective or it's kind of a an impartial observer and this is so not like that and um i think that's really unnerving and kind of great and there's even points where she plays with a little bit i don't know if you've noticed but there's places where you feel like a a camera is watching um almost like a ghost is in the house watching what's going on it kind of it's a handheld so it's like moving slightly but there's no nobody there it just has this eerie feeling of like presences everywhere which i think goes along with the idea of the the gothic maybe the New England gothicness of the whole thing. It's, Alyssa, uh, I loved how you, I, I, I loved how you said that it's not like there are ghosts in this. It, it's more that, you know, she's, I, I, I'm thinking of specifically, sorry, your, your Vox review. You, you were saying that it's not really about ghosts haunting this movie as much as death haunting this movie. Like there's an obsession with uh, the here and now and how scary that can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like the kind of trappedness. I mean, it really is a movie about women disappearing <laughs> and like where sure. do they go? And um, I think that, you know, I don't know, that whole tight, suffocating feeling is partly just a, uh, uh, you know, result of the fact that there's just books everywhere in this house, which I can strongly identify with myself. But um, it's also just like, the like bummer of being a faculty wife. So I was reading um, the novel or the biography, Shirley Jackson's biography, and she hated being a faculty wife in a lot of ways because uh, there was a way that you were supposed to act if you were the wife of a professor. Um, and all the professors were men for whatever reason at Bennington at the time. Um, and uh, she like wrote satirical articles about it for the school newspaper and things like that. And never really had any friends among the faculty wives because she felt like they kind of went along with what they were supposed to be, which was like they were supposed to look a certain way and they were supposed to, um, you know, serve these meals and like know when to disappear into the background and how to entertain. And there's actually a character in Hangs a Man who is a very unhappy faculty wife um, who you can kind of read as at least partly a stand in for her. And so I feel like that just that like oppressiveness is very much a part of this film as well. And one thing that Josephine said that sounded right to me was that you kind of see Shirley and Rose um, start out on opposite ends of a spectrum and kind of cross one another and land on the other end of the spectrum um, as if they kind of trade places in the movie. Yeah, I, I love. 
I, I love the way that uh, Brian, please go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go first. I, I was just going to say, I, you kind of brought me to Rose. I, I mean, as much as we've talked about Shirley, I, I really think that uh, Rose and Fred are, are what make this film you know, so much different than the average writer film, you know, because it, it seems like from the beginning, in the beginning, you know, they're kind of our audience surrogates. So we get a, a baseline for what, you know, Shirley and Stanley are like, but uh, just the extent to which, you know, her like, it's almost like there's a power struggle between like Rose's agency to the point where, you know, she does feel empowered and, you know, like surely you know in the in the end in a way but there is for so long like i i really liked how Shirley almost seemed to go back and forth even you know from scene to scene with being you know entranced with rose and also you know delighting and bullying her like like it's really a it's a it's a tough performance that I think she that I think Moss and Odessa Young, who I've actually never seen in anything else. I, I think they both really nail that uh, kind of love relationship. And it's mm-hmm. interesting that that uh, the 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 parallels or the the similarities in a thematic sense between this and uh, Madeline's Madeline, this concept of like an artist who it's in some way taking someone as their muse but then like transmogrifying them trans just like the weird (laughs) almost liminal space that they put them in and they're like i don't know what's gonna happen to you but when you come out i'm probably gonna have a story it's um it's very it's it's interesting to see two movies that are so different um from stylistic and plot ways but are so very similar thematically and it's it's the type of thing where I, after watching this, I uh, aside from my again like two hours of just frenzied internet research, really wanted to go back and watch Madeline's Madeline to like see what this fixation is on that. Um, when I was when I was first starting as a writer of fiction, I guess in like you know elementary school that doesn't really count, but then like in middle and high school when I started really trying to hone my craft uh i um i let some friends read my stories and many of them were furious with me because they're like that's me you wrote me and now i'm in your story and i was like first of all alex that's not just you there's parts of dave in there and you know i'm sorry but like what do i know of the world like i have to pull from what i know and they're like yeah but like you took like actual biographical moments from my life to build this character. And I'm like, I took them from Dave's life too. Let's just all calm down. And it became very clear to me very quickly how um, exploitative that can feel to people when they're not made aware of it. Uh, Luckily, as you learn more about more people, you're able to dilute people so much that they can't actually accuse you of that anymore. But it's it's, something I I thought about. It's interesting to see it in this. Uh, Bill, you were going to say? Well, I think I think sometimes writers, uh, when they get a certain amount of renown, they don't give a fuck anymore as well. Oh like yeah, they I mean, will. Yeah. <laughs> they will definitely put people in in their works. But I think part of that is also the iteration process of of writing overall. Is 
you may start with a base of this person acts and talks and walks just like your best friend. And then after maybe, you know, three or four drafts of the work, hopefully that kind of gets shaved off and you get some corners on there and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I find the push pull dynamic of these two couples. So interesting because one is fighting for their, almost like stake in the ground, right? The the professor feels like he really created his, you know, he has this big diatribe um, that he gives Shirley at one point. And the fact that Shirley kind of goes along with it at first and then seems to kind of soften. And I'm curious where y'all kind of fall on whether Shirley ultimately is like trying to actually help the couple or if she thinks that this is the newest plaything kind of that's come into her, her, well, her agoraphobic uh, home, right? That last yeah. line in the film, too, has this strange ambiguity uh, about, like, this one hurts more. And you don't know whether she's talking about a story or whether, you know, she's another in a long line of people who they've done this to. Mm-hmm. So one useful biographical piece here is that Stanley, like basically from the start, like when they were dating, would um, like just routinely take other women out, like sleep with them. And then he would their deal was that he would then tell her. Um, So you see that alluded to early in the film when the phone rings at dinner and she says, I thought you took care of that. And Um, she hated it, but she also kind of felt like there was nothing she could do. Um, he was kind of this young revolutionary when she met him. And that was part of what she liked about him was he wasn't like the other guys. And so, um, so maybe he was already doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, almost certainly. I mean, this was also a time when, um, you know, uh, male professors at an all women's school, uh, it wasn't like <laughs> forbidden, it, you know, faculty student relationships weren't forbidden. And while he, oh he had set a rule for himself that he wouldn't, I forget whether it was a hundred miles or something like that. He wouldn't like sleep with a woman who lived within that distance. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that that wasn't happening. And at least you mean, she would you have mean- always you mean further out than a hundred miles or further? Yeah. Well, so Bennington, <laughs> I mean, I, Benning, I don't know how familiar you are with Bennington. I grew up pretty near there. It's, it's at the time it was about a five hour train ride from New York. And, um, he was, he became a staff writer at the New Yorker when he was 23 and he never gave up that title, even though he often didn't write very many pieces for them so he was back and forth from new york a lot eventually shirley was too um they moved around quite a bit more than you might have the impression from the movie so he actually taught at bennington for a year his contract wasn't renewed and then like eight or nine years later he was hired back and he taught till he died there um so yeah so in any case like she has reason to be uh, to raise an eyebrow but she also um, was uh, she was a far more confident woman than you would expect from the mo- the movie version of her. She was like, 
in real life, quite confident in herself and her ability. And she was the breadwinner um, pretty much there, you know, for a good part of their lives. She was a very happy mother. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of hinted at that that she is still the breadwinner of this couple a little bit mm-hmm. because because he very much in a way kind of coddles to coddles her and kind of you know bows to her a little bit in in certain scenarios but you know i mean it's 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 funny because the the agoraphobia obviously plays such an important role where he can coddle her inside the home but as soon as he's outside the home he's a fucking animal right like he's he's just doing whatever the hell he wants and so you know, once he comes back in, it seems like he's he's very much kind of trying to make sure that she can still write. Uh, you know, even even as much as like it, it's so slimy when he says, "I think a novel is too much for you." It also seems like it may actually have some history, and he may actually be like, "Yes, he's being a dick at that point," but also maybe he's a little bit right, you know? It's, right. The, the, well, yeah, the way they have the, this kind of, Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say they had this really symbiotic relationship because he wrote a few books in his um, time, but it would take him like literally 10 years to one of his more famous books. Oh. It took him about 10 years to write. And I know he, an author she, like that. <laughs> <laughs> and she... Um, She, one thing I love about her, the real Shirley Jackson, is she had this really incredibly wicked sense of humor, which you can get from the character in the movie, but even more so. And she would draw these little cartoons, um, you know, like in letters that she would send to people or in her journals. And you can, they found them all over her papers. And she makes just merciless fun of his inability to write more than a few paragraphs at a time (laughs) in her cartoons. Um, (laughs) They're super, I haven't even seen them. I've only read descriptions of them and I was laughing out loud about them. Um, so he, I think he's very aware of like who the real talent is here, even though he has a very high view of himself and not undeservedly. So a version of the class that he teaches in um, the movie. So it he wouldn't have been teaching it at the time, but much later he was teaching a class that I can't remember the name of it but it's something like ritual and myth or something like that and it was by far the most popular course at Bennington it was like he was famous he was a star for this course like it was so big they had to like move it to a (laughs) barn because they couldn't accommodate all the people who wanted to take it and he wrote a book based on it that like was is considered he's he is an important person in the field of criticism um but in any case, like all of that kind of pales in comparison to his wife, who was just a rock star in literature while she was alive, um, like an absolute rock star. I mean, the lottery, uh, I think they say this right in the movie, but is still yeah. the work of fiction that The New Yorker has published that's gotten the most letters. Uh, Take that hate cat mail. person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There's actually a moment she would go she would go by her married name a lot so that people wouldn't realize that Shirley Jackson, the author of the lottery was living in town. Um, But then a newspaper apparently kind of doxed her by accident and she started getting all the hate mail straight to her house. And good. um, Yeah. It's relatable. (laughs) I mean, that is, that, that is, that story is indeed distressing to read. Um, 
<laughs> I I remember I it's one of those stories where you're like I I didn't read it until I think maybe like two years ago. Um, it, it's just one of those things where you hear about it so much, and then you know unless you go and buy the um like a collection of short stories or something like where are you going to find it? I, I actually uh, ended up getting a subscription to New Yorker that gave me access to the archives. So I read it there and uh, you know, it's, you, I'm trying to think of like, what's a, uh, a good analogy, but like, it's almost like jaws. Like you hear jaws, you know, you're a kid and you're in a pool and your dad's just like, dun, 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 and you're like, ah, yes, dad, the shark movie, I get it. And then you actually watch it and you realize that it's like, I don't know, an hour and 40 minutes of white knuckle terror that's going to change your life forever. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the lottery is like, oh, you know, uh, I remember the 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 uh, the joke from The Simpsons where everyone wants to win the lottery. And Kent Brockman says, like, you know, every copy of the lottery has been checked out of the library, though it's not a manual <laughs> on how to win the lottery, but rather a ch- <laughs> chilling parable about the dangers of conformity. <laughs> And, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, all right, yeah, I got to, I gotta, you know, I get it. And then I read the lottery. I was like, this is rough. This is <laughs> so much worse I mean, than I was expecting. It's Midsummer, right? It's the movie Midsummer sure. as a short story. That's yeah. how I think about it. It has all the same kind of like you think you know what's happening and then you kind of realize what's happening. And then it's way more insane than you thought. But there's also no supernatural elements to it and there basically are never supernatural elements in her work like haunting of hill house is technically a ghost story but you kind of don't really know if the ghosts really exist um that's that's like that's insane that's just Mm -hmm. so hard to do to really freak people out and never give them something beyond the material of their brain Well, the thing about the lottery that really kind of struck me is that they have like the conversations between the families and there are so many who are like, you know, I hear that like this is like not even something that they're doing anymore, like a couple towns over. And you just it it builds this world where you're like, I don't like what what time is this taking place in? Like, why did this become a thing? And how has it been going on so long that it's already something that's falling out of vogue? Like, and then it happens anyway. And you're just like oh she got God. emails or emails. She did not get emails. She got letters <laughs> that uh, from people who were like wanting to know. Like a lot of people read it as a piece of journalism, which was mm-hmm. partly the New Yorker's fault because they didn't distinguish between fiction and nonfiction at the time. But um, it is obviously fiction, or it seems like it should be obviously fiction. And they got a lot of mail from people who were like where where is this like where does this happen um (laughs) but that's kind of the beauty of it is it's 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 nearly believable Um, and that's similar to this scary that's similar to this movie like this movie never Mm -hmm. quite goes so far that you're like uh you know just get the fuck out of the house like what are you doing here (laughs) and Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is a lot to do with the performances of both uh, Stuhlberg and um, Moss mm-hmm. is that they are able to modulate that. And almost like their cruelty makes the moments when they're kind all the better. It's like a classic abusive relationship that they're mm-hmm. running on both of these people. And just to go back to the relationship between the two of them, when you first see the movie and it kind of introduces and Stanley's talking to her, she's like, curled up on an armchair hating everything and he's like you know i read her story and i was like that's the woman i'm gonna marry i'm gonna find her i'm gonna stalk her and it's like oh this guy's like kind of being a 
a dick. <laughs> and he That did actually happen, by the way. <laughs> right. And and I mean it's it's crazy. And I love that he's like, it was a great story. I of course had notes. And I was just like, that's the craziest. <laughs> like, that's the type of thing you see on Twitter. Like, that's I can't believe that people have been doing this for that long. And this guy had to do so much more work to be that guy. And you kind of wonder, like, does she resent him? Like, what is happening? And as the movie went on, the best way that I could think of it was, like, that she's a, a, a python who hates eating live animals. And he's the guy who has to continuously coax her into doing it because it's the only way for her to live. And it's just, like, the craziest thing to watch him have to modulate these like moments of being kind and understanding and then just like yelling at her that she needs to get up and to Mm -hmm. see them at the end like you know he's like you know you did it and this is great this is perfect and all you had to do was devour that young couple alive and she's like oh my god this really hurt and he's like yeah but you know ah my bride you know you're so great and let's put on some music and then let's dance and then they're dancing and they look really happy Mm-hmm. And you're just like, I yep. wonder how long this meal will satisfy them for. You're totally right, though, that this could have been the material for like a very different film, <laughs> like the material for like a psychological thriller, for instance, or a straight on thriller that they could have made uh, about, you know, almost seducing these uh, people. But, I, I, you know, these people into their orbits. But I think uh, I think you're, you're totally right, Brian, that like, uh, you know, Moss and Stuhlberg's performance it, it's never really like totally menacing e- even when they're at their most like mean there's still this certain like <laughs> pathetic quality to it like it, it's it, it, it it's like you can't totally be it, it's not like it's not hurtful but mm-hmm. it's it's such a, a strange uh thing to not tip over into camp or to tip over into, you know, something that's like very specifically horror. Well, we had a conversation. Uh, well, God, was it only last week about about You Don't Know Me and Showgirls? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, and we talked a lot about camp and the concept of camp and what it means. And yeah, this is definitely a movie that if pitched the right way or the wrong way or a specific way, could tip into that and i don't think that it it ever quite does um which is a little surprising given how much opportunity there is i mean like there's a scene where where rose is walking through the campus and there's just a bunch of women dancing on a tree <laughs> like i that you know that's one of the first things you see in this movie i was like i don't know where we're going with this but it's very interesting um I also that, love when Shirley pours the wine on the couch. Oh, the uh, <laughs> the the review. I, I on, love I love that she's patting it or she she's like pushing it and then she's like no 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 pat pat I got a pat. And so Sheila like, yes. more. <laughs> Sheila O'Malley over at RogerEbert.com devotes the first like paragraph and it kind of becomes a theme of the entire review to that whole scene with the wine and the don't rub it dab it. And how much horror there is on the woman that this that Shirley Jackson doesn't know how to stop a stain. Um, if you have not read that review, it is very good. You should go check it out. But yeah, I mean that's that's like the kind of scene where it's just like they, they, if if it were not for the fact that there is such a deeply disconcerting energy running through that, 
that could have been insanely campy scene, but instead, like, <laughs> really, for some reason, feel the horror of this woman who's watching her couch get ruined, and you can just sort of feel the malevolence coming off of Shirley. Well, also, like, you know, that woman is sleeping with her husband, yeah. so she's she's pretty pissed, and she knows exactly how to needle her, just <laughs> exactly how to needle her. And I kept thinking of, um, I mean, every Elizabeth Moss performance in my mind is pretty spectacular, but whenever she's in Alex Ross Perry's movies, she's always playing sort of this variety of person. Um, I mean, Her Smell was one of my favorite movies when it came out last year i guess technically but then um this had like real queen of earth overtones to me where she's just so lost in her own head um but but it's like all the horror is in her head and in that film like nothing horrifying is actually happening to her but she's just like completely spinning out but in one thing i like about this movie is it's clear that like in a sense i mean the way they've they've concocted this Shirley is both the protagonist or a protagonist of the story and she's also kind of writing it um since so much of what's happening in it is drawn out of her novels rather than out of her real life and it's like a it's like a narrative that the protagonist is writing um so you know the agoraphobia and the anxiety was part of her life but you also in the movie I think can can see it as one of her own plot devices that she would write into a book or into a story to freak people out. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a kind of a, I mean, by the end, right. Rose is, is being encouraged to like take control and agency in her own life. And it's something that she's ready to do. And you can see a little bit of how that's been happening for Shirley. That's what she's been doing this whole way through. So it's sort of eating its own tail in a way that I find really pleasing and also i love how much it confounds people um that's what she would have wanted (laughs) (laughs) do you know if the estate has said anything about the novel or the movie i didn't get to actually look it up Alyssa. well um they haven't um i you know i don't think they have her life rights or anything like that which they don't have to because it's based on a novel so um you know i don't know for sure what the whole detail is but they haven't they haven't said anything, but also, you know, the weird thing about Shirley Jackson is she, everyone has read the lottery. I mean, I read it in junior high in a literature book. So like most Americans, I think at some point have bumped into it alongside like a Flannery O'Connor short story or whatever. Um, They're kind of in the same camp, but um, she's still considered a way underappreciated author. And you can kind of see why I think like, you can't read her books and not be totally affected by them or gripped by them. And yet there isn't like a burgeoning or until recently there wasn't a burgeoning field of Shirley Jackson studies, which is mystifying because they're rich in all kinds of things that, you know, that interest scholars today, like gender and, you know, um, mental health and, you know, spaces and houses and all that stuff. So I think, you know, there's been a little resurgence of that. So there was a there was a not very good, in my opinion, Netflix series um, of the haunting of Hill House. Yeah, Yeah. which is is very loose. Lanigan one. Um, I can't remember who. Yes, but it was. um, 
it was maybe two years ago and I, you know, it's loosely based on the novel, but it is something that people be like, Oh, right. That, you know, that exists. Um, and the biography, when it came out, I think won the Pulitzer was a finalist. So there's a burgeoning interest in her, which means a movie like this with a star like Elizabeth Moss in it. And, um, you know, and Michael Stubarg playing like the 50th professor that he's ever played. Um, it can only be good. <laughs> he <laughs> is sure like made to be a bearded professor, you know, just yes. what was it? it but he's usually so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think of like <laughs> a serious man, obviously. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, that's quite a character. He's not and sweet then, in that movie. He's, I don't even know no. how to describe his character in that movie. It's, uh, pathetic is, is what he is. Yeah. In there. He's, he's a, 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 like a rabbit with a broken leg asking a fox for right. some help. Like, I just, I, he's <laughs> just such a tempting job. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And then there's, you know, Call Me By Your Name, where he's like a different character, but also similar in some ways. I guess he just, he looks the part. But, Having I having just read the biography, I can say that he is like to a T what Stanley Hyman seems to have been, um, which is which is very interesting to me. Um, he even looks like him. Yeah, I am. Um, I again, I I knew people like that. I got invited to parties that those professors threw because you the know literati. in college. What was that? <laughs> the literati. <laughs> yeah, I mean in college, you know. I, I, I love to read and I took a lot of English courses and I, I would write short stories and, you know, they were, I never got published or anything, but my professors were like, this is so good. You got to come to like my salon and they'd call it that. And I'd be like, oh fuck, I cannot do this. But then I would do it because there's a part of me, you know, now we call it FOMO, but back then it was just like, I don't know, I need to do something or I'm going to go mad. And so I'd go and it would, it would be like a bunch of very self-serious lit majors and i was a journalism major i just took the english courses because i enjoyed reading and i needed easy credits <laughs> and so they're like oh like you know let's let's do a let's do a read like let's do a scene from shakespeare like let's stand up and like all say our favorite sonnet and i'm in the corner just being like i'm just here to drink and uh I really i uh, <laughs> feel like i need to get out of here and um if someone picks up another book and starts reciting a poem i'm gonna fucking kill myself and so <laughs> I kept going to them, but I always hated them. And this movie, like I said, gave me that feeling and that first thing that they walked into that made my skin crawl. And I was like, yep, I recall this. And his ebullience and his familiarity where he's like, you know, oh, I don't have to treat you like a stranger because we're all family and the love of the bard. Right. And it's just like, no, man, I don't know. You stop touching my shoulder. <laughs> I feel like the only appealing version of that that's ever been in films was Princess Sid. And that was like, yes, just because right. the vibe in there was like unpretentious. Right. It, like, I think I, we even when we talked to um, Stephen Cohn about that, I even said, like, God yeah. bless you for finally making one of these actually look fun. Because usually it's so daunting to imagine. And again, that just goes into what I was saying, like aesthetically about this film, like the books spilling from every corner, the kind of like unkempt, but like not filthy, (laughs) but just like, you know, these people are too smart to tidy type of thing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's so spot on and it really helps to sell 
Eh, everything. Um, we have not talked, I feel, a lot about the Nesmers, who are the uh, sensible, well, you know, Rose is the ostensible protagonist, I would say, of this movie. Um, mm-hmm. She is our in. Um, d- d- easiest question. Does anyone have any feelings on them? Does, do you think that the, the story told <laughs> using them was well done? Because we've talked a lot about the themes and the, the acting, you know, specifically related to uh, Hyman and Jackson, but like, you know, how did we feel about the actual story, the plot of the movie and how it affects Rose and her uh, husband, whose name I have already forgotten. Fred? Fred. Fred yep. Nemser. Yeah. What a name. Well, yes. I think I think a conversation has to start with when uh, the professor first asks Rose if she will basically be a housemaid. And <laughs> I love that as soon as that conversation is like broached, uh, her husband like walks away and is just like, Oh, I got to tend to these students over here. Let me, let me talk to them. It's <laughs> just like, really, you're going to leave me right now while, while he's asking if I can be a maid. Later that night, he uses the language of this is a great opportunity for us, uh, which I, which I noted. Cause that that's totally the type of, you know, it's a good opportunity for him. And she is going to have to suffer for it. And uh, uh, Bill, I, I think it's it's really great that you point that out because that does immediately seem like we're starting with the sense of expectation that this uh, that this movie just wants to, you know, really wants to uh, dig into from that early time. I mean, like, you know, if there's any. uh I don't know. If you want to talk about the ways this reminded me of Mother, it was was with, it was with, uh, excuse me, it was with Rose. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, so I also talked to Elizabeth Moss for this one and she was saying that for her anyhow, and I think this was just about right. Like Shirley sees Rose as the, a younger version of herself um, by a, by a bit. Um, although the age is a little fuzzy here since the Jackson Hyman household has no children for narrative reasons, but, um, you know, like that she was seeing a woman who was in the same place that Shirley herself had been where she had to make a decision about whether she was going to strike out on her own or she was going to kind of be subsumed. And, and it feels like the great, struggle i don't know i don't want to say that too definitively but a great struggle in shirley jackson's life was that she was very much like part of what it was to be a a brilliant woman who was also very domestic um in the late 40s and then into the 50s and just trying to like navigate that divide and she's almost kind of trying to kick maybe even subconsciously kick Rose out of becoming the same as her. Um, you know, she's younger. She like, she might have a future where she doesn't have to do that. Um, for me, the weakest part of Rose as a character is that she just doesn't actually have a thing of her own that she seems to want to do, which is a bit of a, maybe a narrative lapse or something um, that might've been interesting. But uh, in any case, I think that's, it's That's it's interesting. interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that because 
I was I was getting the sense that when she arrived, she was arriving with some kind of purpose. And and at first, it seems like she's supposed to be kind of a a helper for the professor, right? And uh, I yeah, I mean, she kind of I think what happened is she dropped out of school and she's decided she's going to go back at Bennington, and then it's just completely thwarted by this like, oh, why don't you like do our family's housework? Mm-hmm. Um, which is and, which is yeah. such a shitty thing for her husband to like allow to happen but also like the whole purpose of them kind of coming out that far is for her husband to maybe potentially get a a you know a, a professorship over there or whatever that's called right. like he, he calls it tenure but i thought tenure means like you you get tenure after you've been teaching for a while traditionally well not in the late 40s. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I only structures they're weird. <laughs> yeah. I only, um, I only know about this recently. So yeah. I mean, he's still trying to, you know, finish his dissertation. I, I have to say, I love the casting of Logan Lerman, who I'm sure is a perfectly nice guy, but also just looks like n- nobody. Like he just doesn't look. He's <laughs> oh, a completely. I forgot this. He Logan looks like Lerman. he's he's the guy in the Percy Jackson movies, right? Yes, he is uh, Percy Jackson. Yeah, okay. and indignation yeah. which which is really good yes he's also, but he uh, also in hunters and fury apparently interesting he has the look of a guy who would be like one of the men who work in don draper's office where like he just <laughs> looks like that so that's what he does and i that's fine you know the way he looks is just how he looks but i feel like fred nemser is such an incredibly dull person that um <laughs> and inconsequential like he's basically just a prop in the movie um and when that uh, i think that works to the story's advantage because when he asks about his dissertation and stanley says it's derivative uh normally i would think oh how dare he like squash this young man's hopes but this time i thought well yeah he's probably right <laughs> you know what? <laughs> he probably he's probably <laughs> unremarkable <laughs> That terrifically is, competent i think is, is the word yeah he, yeah. He, yeah he says he's like he's like if he was stupid or bad or something at least it would have been interesting but he's just like fine <laughs> which um i feel like is the thing that i've said about movies before um and mm-hmm. yeah i but so it's interesting because i did see that and it's funny you say the don draper thing because i was like he is such a like early mid 20th century face and he definitely does have the kind of Bob Benson thing. If if there's Mad Men fans out there, you know that Bob Benson is the guy who's just like generically handsome and is like hoping to just get by on the fact that he's generically handsome and speaks with a mid-Atlantic accent. And um, yeah, Lerman has a lot of that. In fact, I um, I there was a point where, you know, when Shirley is finally like, "There's no Shakespeare Society," like you know, it's just how the girls decide which professors they're gonna they're gonna fuck. And I was like. I don't Logan Lerman. And I think that this is how he no, like, you know, handsome man. I am certain that many young women would love to sleep with him. It just, he, there was nothing about him that particularly struck, struck me as the kind of guy who would do that. And there was a part of me that was sort of hoping that much like, you know, we were talking about Shirley Jackson's fiction, how there's no like actual ghosts or anything like uh supernatural. I was almost hoping that like, he there would be no at least hard proof that he was doing that and that perhaps Shirley's 
feelings about her own husband and hers um, arrangement were just like infecting Rose and that it would be left either ambiguous or like proven to be false, but it wouldn't really matter in the end anyway, because that's just the kind of environment that got made. It almost feels too easy to just like say like, and by the way, he's cheating on her and that's going to make it worse. But isn't it also harder that they don't necessarily like they kind of have that be the end of that thread. And similarly, you know, as much as pregnancy is a fixation early on, you know, first from the the bullying from Shirley, but then mm-hmm. later on as kind of a more complicated, you know, psychosexual uh, a relationship, you know, they never show her having the baby. For instance, I, I feel like those are, are are two ways that Decker like very distinctly wants to push away from some of those more pat dynamics and and like get to something a little more spontaneous in the in the process. If that makes sense. Well, and I also think you know I. Uh... It, it's like it's such a boring and obvious thing that he would be doing that that's kind of the point like of <laughs> like you're so unoriginal you can't even bother to not do the most obvious thing you could possibly be doing yeah and but at that point it basically doesn't matter like he's he's basically irrelevant which is a point that rose makes very clear um he's just not that he's just not that interesting <laughs> and you know he's for just all not his that faults, interesting not even yeah, into you. i mean for all <laughs> his faults like the best thing about stanley hyman was that he he actually was brilliant like he wasn't he wasn't just posturing about it um even if he wasn't brilliant he was entertaining person. you know he, he you could even yep. see in that class that he was a freaking rock star you know Absolutely. he and, like you finishes know, in, playing a record and he's like and that was you know, whatever the hell the name of that folk ballad was. Yeah. And everyone's just like, ha ha, lead belly. And it's just like, all he did was say a name. But there's something about the <laughs> yep. guy that's just so friggin' charismatic that you're like, yeah, you're damn right it was. Yep. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and it, it is at least, I think, a pretty good, it helps you understand like these, like Shirley and Stanley belong together um, in so many ways. But part of the reason is like they, each of them, the, the smartest person they know is the other one and like that that is a pretty powerful thing i think <laughs> for people especially people who get easily bored you know just that kind of like i don't want it's not intellectual attraction so much as like i can't stand anyone else and i can only stand you sometimes but that's something yeah and it's it's interesting that like you, you know she has that response to the woman at the party where she pours wine all over her couch and says like he'd be bored of you like in a couple minutes like you know and it, she, basically she has that 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 feeling about the the whole of the nesmers um mm-hmm. she doesn't even, like it's not even like she's particularly drawn to rose and she's like there's something about this girl it's like no she'll do it's you know very easy mm-hmm. to poke at her and like get a reaction out of her she even said like uh you know uh stanley says like has the little wifey like read your your book and she's like yeah, she did. She even like offered line edits and it's not like, you know, something that she obviously was inviting it. She's saying it almost derisively like, oh, this girl thinks she's a part of writing the story and doesn't realize that she is the story. 
Yeah, yeah, I think she at best reminds her of this girl who, or her version of this girl who's disappeared, who she Mm -hmm. is genuinely kind of fascinated by, although for reasons that don't have so much to do with the girl. Right, because Stanley even says, like, you're never going to figure out this missing girl. And she's like, you know, I I will, something's going to happen. And it's like, she never even tries to figure out Rose. She already knows everything she needs to, because Rose didn't disappear without a trace, you know? That's the one thing that could make Rose interesting to her is if she did something unexplainable like that. It's kind of fascinating, too, that to to speak directly to like that magnetism, you know, like for a little while, as you as you're saying, Brian, like Shirley goes along with it because she's like, oh, this is an entertaining diversion. But then you see, you know, that eroticism you think is going to carry two scenes over there at the party. And, you know, uh, Rose is trying to, you know, uh, slyly smile at Shirley and she wants she doesn't give a shit. <laughs> like it's, yeah. she's on to the next thing. Like it's it, it is it, it is fascinating the way they they go back and forth, because at any given time, as you're saying, I like sometimes it seems like she doesn't care. And sometimes, uh, you know, it seems like she's the person who gives her almost this. uh this burst of energy that she, you know, goes into these like trance like episodes. Like Rose is a part of so many of those. But is it Rose that's in those trance like episodes or is it this Paula <laughs> woman? Like that's the thing that's, that is both the point of the movie and the, uh, the Josephine Decker of it all, you know, the same right. actress. Yeah. So it is the same actress, but you know, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> because rose is, is it, you know and at the end of the movie uh when they're standing on the cliff rose sure. is rose and paula is the girl in the red coat and for a moment on top the cliff rose is wearing that red coat even though that's not what she came there in sure mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know again josephine decker yep. the, the, the ability of <laughs> identity yeah she Josephine told me that um, she prefers if people leave her movies without quite knowing what they've just seen. So I think what we're proving is that she was very successful. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I also think like what you just said is right, and I just ha- you know it is great to hangs a man is not the plot of this movie at all. But there one of the elements that really is there is where you start to like genuinely wonder if our you know protagonist natalie's like personality is splitting or what is happening that's very much part of the book and so there's definitely a huge taste of this but it's almost as if i mean rose and by the end rose and fred could have never existed at all um and you know, the the movie could have ended the same way. It could have been a total figment of her imagination. Um, because what's important is, like, Shirley managed to grab her demons around the throat and, like, shove them into a novel and then scare the pants off of everybody else with that novel. So I think... It was was Hangs a Man... You know, I've never heard of Hangs a Man before. Um, I've heard of We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Haunting of Hill House. Though... Uh, my first introduction to The Haunting of Hill House was the 1999 Jan de Bont film, The Haunting. So probably not the best introduction to it. Um, but is, is Hangs a Man, like, was that a big novel? Was that a, a, a success? 
It was a success critically. Um, all of her novels were. Actually, a weird fact about Shirley Jackson that I think goes along with this is that in addition to writing all of these like terrifically creepy books, she also wrote several um, like quite cheerful memoirs of her family. <laughs> Just like funny things that her family did. They sold extremely well. Yeah, one, they, they, the, na- the names of them are Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons. <laughs> Yeah, this woman yeah. really was a multi-talent. Like, yeah, and yeah. like she completely confounded critics who were like, "How can she write two things at once?" And it's, <laughs> I mean, I feel you know, with apologies, I feel like that's like a kind of hilariously male perspective because it's it's not all that hard to write like domestic dramas or comedies and also have these terrifying nightmares uh, that are very domestic like that does not strike me as as difficult at all but people were like well how is she doing this and the answer was (laughs) well she just is um but what was funny was that her novels took a while to start really making back their advances um this was in an era in publishing when people got much bigger advances and rarely earned them back but so i don't think hang's men was like a massive commercial success like some of her later books were but it was it was well regarded and still considered like maybe one of her best and of course as it was coming out in the wake of the lottery having been in the new yorker a couple years earlier that meant that people knew who shirley jackson was so it's in a sense her novel that came out the first novel she came out when she was famous right um yeah because you know the way that stanley responds to it is like oh my god this is it babe you done it yep it's your masterpiece yep Although as uh, one of my favorite things about their whole story, as I think I wrote in my review, um, he wouldn't read The Haunting of Hill House because he was too scared, (laughs) (laughs) which I just think is great. (laughs) He didn't like ghosts. She must have told him there was ghosts in it. And he just he was like, nope, not going to do that. (laughs) No. I imagine some of this came from, uh, you know, the novel, Shirley, as well as, you know, the autobiography and just the the full sense of who Shirley Jackson was. But I it was interesting to use the word uh, demons, because I think this, you know, not only in terms of Moss's past performances, but generally how this film portrays someone, you know, dealing with you know, uh, nightmares and, uh, you know, hallucinations and, you know, uh, various issues related to that. It, it's not like, you know, she's, you know, shuddering in, in the corner. It, you know, it's it's not it, – she's not the typical, you know, traumatized figure in, in a way. And I think that's also what made this so un- unusual. You, you know, like I find it fascinating that she seems to be – drinking as much as she does to, you know, uh, calm her nerves and calm her anxiety. But, like, her demons are not things, you know, that... I I can't quite figure out how to articulate this. It it just... It it feels very different to me than the average movie where someone seems tormented. Like, she's not the average uh, tormented, you know, great artist... It seems a little right. more, I guess it's, it's prickly, I, I guess is probably the word I'm looking for. I mean, but. I also think her her tormentors are fully external. Um, I, I mean, in this film, anyhow, I think it's strongly implied that 
she's kind of breaking mainly because Stanley is just not great <laughs> to be <laughs> with. And because there's all these people in town. I mean, she says at some point, like, I can feel them all looking at me, right? Like, I can't, like, yeah. when I go outside, I can feel everyone staring. And is it because of the story, which obviously everyone knows that she wrote it is, and it's obviously, I mean, that story is spot on skewering of new England towns. I say as a new Englander. Um, and, uh, you know, is it because of that or is it because she doesn't look and act like a, like a faculty wife is supposed to, or what is the reason we don't really know. But I think, you know, it's not like she's struggling with her great genius that she just can't get out on the page. Like she can get it out on the page. She can write, but she, she's like being kind of driven into these spells because of how, how, because of the place she is and because it's all kind of external. It's different than these, these artist biopics with all the same, you know, arc that walk hard um kind of skewered so well but you know it's not like oh you know i'm so successful and now all my success is dragging me down it's just a woman who's like geez these people suck and it's driving me to despair in that sense it reminded me a lot of a, a quiet passion uh, or, or I guess you could say any of the three Dickinson interpretations okay. we've gotten in recent years, whether it's Dickinson, whether it's Wild Wild Nights with Emily, I think is yeah, Wild Nights with yes. Emily and a I love and a quiet movie. passion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's it, it is really interesting. You mentioned that because I, I I think that's often my biggest problem with biopics is there is one way to portray tortured genius and it's it's not it's not that uh it's not as easy as that you know sometimes it it is as hard to you know uh get out of bed and and deal with your surroundings and i i i really like uh not only that but in relation to i just can't help but think how this is almost an inverse in terms of performance compared to like the alex ross perry stuff which is so physical and this it's not that this isn't physical but you know she has to coil inward like so much of this movie is finding different ways to seem you know almost like uncomfortable but like laying <laughs> she she has so many interesting uh, almost uh, poses in, in this film the, the way she just kind of uh places herself in this house I just have to say, Michael, you know, you mentioned all these uh, Emily Dickinson things. You didn't mention Dickinson. The oh, Apple wait, I TV. Did, didn't I? did you? I thought you said it's, Wild Nights yeah, with Emily. Yeah. No, he said Dickinson. It's really entertaining. Uh, I, I highly recommend that. I thought it was going to be a little goofy and Wiz Khalifa's somehow death in that show. But it is uh, really entertaining. Did you say <laughs> death or death? Death, like death. The, the specter of death that the haunts us all. Oh, okay. of all right. death. All right. Also, uh, what is what is his name? Um, oh my God, Jason Manzukis is in this. Henry David Thoreau. Jason, is... Jason's in everything. <laughs> John Mulaney. Yes, John Mulaney. Thank you. <laughs> and he is a wonderful uh, petty egomaniac. <laughs> With a, it's this is the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for. The downfall of peak TV or whatever the hell we're going through right now. 
is that with this cast, I should love and see this show immediately. <laughs> and yet I know that I probably never will. Because yep, it's Apple TV much. or because just because? Yeah, I'm not going to get another goddamn streaming service. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, well, Brian, I hate to let you know. Um, I think you bought that MacBook right around the time that they were probably giving away a year free. So about okay. I, mm, I bought the MacBook in like September of 2018. Okay, well, there's also a trial. That oh, well, do. yes, then I can burn through all 20 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I feel like I derailed us. Um, <laughs> I um, I wanted to bring up uh, something that uh, you had said, Alyssa, that the end of this movie, you know, there is a sensation of like, you know, these people could not have even been there. The Nesmers, they actually had to... Um, like watch the last five minutes, probably more than that. Cause that, that final scene where it's just directly at uh, Elizabeth Moss's face is a long one. But like when the Nesmers were getting in the, the car, I legitimately thought that the baby just disappeared. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I, it's one of those things where, you know, having watched the movie and having seen the, uh, you know, identity trickery and the uncertainty, I was like, Oh my God, like, what is this trying to tell me? Like, is it just that, you know, once the car was moving, they couldn't like ensure her holding an actual like infant child. And like, so they, you know, moved the the camera or like, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? Like, is Fred even in that car with her at that point? Like, what is happening? And um, unlike most movies where I would hate that, <laughs> this movie had done a great job of sort of building up that expectation and a kind of glee over that that I was able to just kind of hang with it and be like, nope, this still this still is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, do- I mean, I always prefer a movie that leaves me going like, what? <laughs> <laughs> At the end. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, too many things are logical uh, in the movies is my, my contention. Um, but yeah, I mean, the end is very, you know, it's very kind of, uh, well, one thing that, both um elizabeth and josephine pointed out to me is that they they the the costume designers actually tried to find a way to make rose and shirley like basically swap ways of dressing um throughout the movie so like at the beginning like shirley's kind of this mess and rose is all put together and by the end they're totally they they've kind of absorbed one another um and i don't think it's just their clothing i think it's like kind of everything about them yeah rose um, even sounds aspect. like her at some points like when she mm-hmm. when she's talking to that postal worker yeah she's got a real shirley vibe to her and that's very early in their acquaintanceship yep yep yeah. and it's not accidental it's uh it's a sort of yeah i mean attraction repulsion magnetic thing that also you know they've they sort of they're traveling the same path for a little bit of time, but they kind of pick up each other um, and come away quite different um, by the end. Yeah. So it feels like we might be wrapping up. Are there any yeah. final aspects of this movie that we feel we haven't touched on or any uh, just final theses that we want to throw out? So I'll, I'll mention this. I, uh, 
I appreciate the fact that you didn't ask if I had read any of her works, Brian. I uh, said I asked the group if anyone mm, had read anything. You you asked each person one by one, and then you skipped over me. But uh, no, I haven't, and I think that's probably why. Why did you yourself? Okay. Oh, I feel like I just said, like, did anyone, like, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. I, You know, Bill, I, I would almost say you're welcome, but you just outed yourself. So I don't know what <laughs> yeah, to do no, about I'm this not, now. I'm not, I'm not trying to hide behind the fact that I haven't read any of her works. Uh, Here's a question. As, as, so I don't know who's watching this movie. Um, it's I'm, I'm constantly shocked by what gains traction in these quarantine induced streaming times mm-hmm. of ours, I feel like a lot of people in a modern sense are more like me two years ago where they are aware of Shirley Jackson, but maybe have not sought out her work. So like having seen this movie now, are you like, Ooh, I got to get me some of that Shirley Jackson. Yeah. I mean, I'm re- looking at the lottery right now. Um, so I'm definitely going to read the lottery at some point. Um, and yeah, depending on that, um, I don't know. It's funny because I've watched a weird semi-biopic about her. So I don't know what the fuck that even – like how that informs my view on her, right? Because like as as we've been talking, it's become very clear that maybe her character in this film is a little bit more kind of on on the nose. But everything else around this is very much like – you know, pulled from different areas and stuff like that. So I don't even know what to make of, of her as a character or, or this movie, as far as like what that informs my impression of her writing. Right. Um, but no, I'm, I'm definitely curious and interested in, in her writing now, but I do, I do wonder if this is more built to, for people to enjoy because it definitely seems like um uh, Alyssa has a lot more enjoyment out of this because she's got so much more context i'm also curious you know in that way like how how you know people who see this movie will return to her work or see her work you know if you have this image in your mind of who this person was um, and it's, it's a, it's a very singular sort of issue to have to go through because usually that's not what these are like, you know, um, if you, if you watch like, what is it? The station, the, is that the Leo, the Leo Tolstoy one? Like, you know, oh, right. you, you don't leave that the last station. Yeah. That's the one I never saw it. Um, <laughs> but I assume that you don't leave that thinking that he might be like a soul eater who destroyed young couples in order to create his work. Um, Only his own marriage and wife. Like, you know, then that, that is one that might purport to be some level of truth. Like it's, it's kind of rare that we get a movie wherein a, a figure, a literary figure who is the writer is part of a, um, a fictional story in this way. Uh, One that springs to mind uh, is not, I'm not making this any kind of quality thing, but the Raven, the 2012 John James <laughs> John McTeague movie with John Cusack as Edgar Allan Poe. But that's not the type of movie where you see that. And then you're like, man, I will never read the fall of the house of Usher the same way again, you know, but I feel so you see Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. <laughs> oh, I love Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. 
Can't lie. <laughs> totally do. And it's uh, it's embarrassing, but I sort of love that movie. Um, there's well, something... Well, I do think I'd... Or, I, I mean, one thing I'd say is that biopics about writers are incredibly hard to make interesting. They're oh, not yeah. like musicians where, like, they play music and that's part of the fun. I mean... Uh, I have my own opinions about Bohemian Rhapsody, um, well, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, at least you get to like hear some great music, um, you know, and writers are just like super boring. All we do is sit down and scribble away. And so you really have to have someone with like a crazy life or so one thing that's so good about this is that it, 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 instead of making you watch her creative process be like the whole plot, yeah. instead it just sticks you smack in the middle of one of her novels and you're just basically living one of her novels. And and so like if you like this at all or if you feel like this story kind of you dig it, then then it's a really good indication that you should go read her novels. I will say um, that um, like the, to what you said, Gus Van Sant made a movie that made a mathematician seem cool. He then tried to do the same <laughs> thing to a writer and it did not work. No, um, they're fine. usually not good. <laughs> no. And that's the thing is like, you're like, what could be more boring than math? But for some reason, uh, what's his face? Damon just scribbling on a chalkboard and saying things that don't make any sense to my brain um, is super compelling. But just finding Forrester is you're like, you're like, yeah, he reads, he writes. The only movie that I remember really liking that was about an author is um, Starting Out in the Evening um, mm. with Frank Langella. And that's because it's about how boring being a writer is. <laughs> he, the the starting on the evening is him literally like that's his whole shtick he's like yeah yeah I, I i don't like you know go and get crazy like i sit down and i just start writing because you have to write to write and it's like that's the whole boring truth of his life <laughs> and it's nice that the movie embraces that and then you know it puts those words and ideas in the voice of frank langella who is a, a very bizarrely laconically charismatic actor <laughs> did you see did any of y'all see the end of the tour no. yes <laughs> yeah that's uh that's interesting i think um that's a but that's also a very interesting writer right David yeah, Foster he has a Wallace. persona yeah. yeah he's got that it's bandana it's also not and it's not like much of a biopic at all it's you know it's because it's like based on someone else's memoir it's um and it also only picks up i'm sorry i have a i have a long history of reading and writing about david foster wallace and it it basically picks up sort of the tone of his ethics without any of a sense of how his writing worked hmm. um like the sort of frenetic over footnoted circular wildness of his writing so um I like the movie a lot, but it is interesting to me that it's so much harder to just capture the tone or like the feel of someone's writing in their in their movie. I do actually think a quiet passion is a, a, as close as we might have gotten because you watch that movie and you pretty much know if Emily Dickinson is for you or not. <laughs> um, but you know, like writing pr prose or poetry and making a movie are fundamentally different. One is visual and one is not so that's yes. a real big challenge um 
we should start our own podcast where we do nothing but review movies that are biopics or at least, you know, otherwise, you know, accounts of their lives of writers. Oh, no. We could do Finding Forrester. We, we could do Bright Star. Salinger is really bad. Bright oh, Star is pretty good, though. I, I like Bright Star. I mean, Jane Campion. That one probably hits it. Yeah. I, I like Neruda as well. I, that, that's one that hasn't been mm. mentioned, but that's not really about writing at all. Naruto? <laughs> <laughs> yep, Naruto. <laughs> I don't know that. I don't even remember Salinger being a thing. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Edward Norton. Wow. Anyway, um, while I uh, let that run over my head, um, let's end it. This is a. Uh, been a very wide-ranging and uh i feel interesting conversation i think it is for me solidified that i quite enjoyed this movie and uh, i hope that anyone who's listening still for some reason and hasn't seen the movie already will go and give it a chance again it can be found on hulu for free with a subscription or you can rent it on uh every or i don't know if it's every other but many other vod platforms So check it out. Um, It is available now. And it is a new movie, which, again, is not something that we are used to at this current time. So uh, you might find that to be quite novel. And wrapping up. uh, Again, find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Go to Patreon.com slash The Film Stage Show to give us your money. And don't forget that we are brought to you by Mubi the curated online streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. All you got to do for your free 30-day trial is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. And again, if you would like a great little primer on ways that you can help uh, and uh, everything that's going on in the world right now, go to blacklivesmatters, with an S, dot card, with two R's, dot co. Again, that is blacklivesmatters.card.co. And that is that. I, I just uh, want to say, I, 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 I'm sorry. I just saw this news alert. California is going to reopen movie theaters as early as you know, Friday. You know, I saw that. I wasn't going to bring it up. Capacity. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's weird for me. I I went on vacation, you know, which seems like a crazy thing to do at this time, but I had. I feel like I needed it. I was crazy burned out from doing everything that I had been doing with the distillery. By the way, if you'd still like to give to our GoFundMe, SchmidtSpirits.com, uh, and help us produce hand sanitizer for the D.C. area. Um, uh, But the beach is open, and it's outside, and I was still pretty much quarantined with my family, you know? And there's just something about the idea of sitting in a lightless, closed-off room... <laughs> even with the just 25% for people, uh, that's a, a little unnerving to me. And I just don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I'm not ready. <laughs> the thing is, and you know, I was talking to my friend Arthur, who again I'm, is... I'm, uh, I'm is, not ready to hear someone cough in that area. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I will pull out my phone and, and <laughs> shine a light and be like, who was that? Get the hell out of here. Get out. <laughs> so my my friend Arthur, who again I, I work with, um, is an administrator for a hospital. And he was telling me, you know, um, at some point we do. Like we got to go. Like that's the, the whole point of the lockdown was to give people like me time to make my hospital prepared 
for all the people who are going to get sick. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people are going to get sick and many of those people are going to need a hospital. And now sure. the expectation was that at some point it would end and people would go out and people would get sick. And he's like, I feel like all the messaging was wrong. You know, like beating the, the disease wasn't never getting it because we stayed in our house, you know, and opening up now doesn't mean that it's over, which is another problem that a lot of people have. He said, you know, what it means is we have space for you now. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, I understand why people didn't really blare that message, because that's bleak. But at some point, it may just come down to that. Uh, that being said, you should be incredibly smart during any kind of reopenings that you're going through, because I know many cities are doing that. And I just don't know that theater going is ever going to be a super smart idea. <laughs> Until fall 2021. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, what is that movie, The Wretched, that's like in drive-in theaters and it's just like the only movie yeah. that's on the top 10 right now? It's doing gangbusters. Too. Yeah, you think it just crossed a million, which honestly, I'm surprised that America has enough drive-in theaters to make that a possibility. The Vast of Night was playing some places too, which is a perfect drive-in movie. But, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, we have had yeah. conversations. I'll ask Michael Snydell what we're talking about next week very soon. Um, but we have had conversations about possibly doing the Vast of Night because the response to that has been super positive. Uh, Alyssa, have you seen the Vast of Night? I have. It's great. Yeah, it's see, really good. It is. It is, in fact, the perfect drive-in movie, and it probably would be easier to see on a drive-in screen than pretty much anywhere else. So I recommend it. All right. Um, now that we've said that, and that's a movie that's in our crosshairs for another time, Michael Snydell, what are we actually talking about next week? Uh, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Excellent. And that will be coming to Netflix this Friday, correct? Uh, it's actually on Netflix, I believe, this... Oh, no. It is Friday. I thought it was Wednesday for some reason. It's Friday. All right. Excellent. So watch that movie and then come back to listen to us talk about it. In the meantime, let's tell the fine people at home where we could be found online. And, of course, we'll begin with our guest, Alyssa uh, Wilkinson. Where can people find your work on the internet? Um, all of my writing is at Vox, Vox.com. Um, there's a handy dandy little page there that you can find by Googling me. And then I also am on Twitter um, and my handle is Alyssa Marie. And again, that is Vox with a V. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Important. <All right. laughs> Bill Graham. You can find me on Twitter at CableBFG. You can also find me on Instagram. That's where I post mostly uh, lately, and that's going to be Billstagram. Uh, figure it out. <laughs> I have so many friends who just made their Instagram names portmanteaus of Instagram. <laughs> uh, one of them's name is Graham, so you can imagine. There you go. Um, <laughs> good work, early adopters. Uh, <laughs> Michael Snydell, what about yourself? Uh, you could find me on Twitter at uh, at Snydell. Uh, I write occasionally for uh, the Spool. I don't. I don't think I have anything this week. Um, I think you had like a terrible movie that you didn't want to talk about. Oh, Becky, Becky, the the Kevin James neo Nazi movie, um, which isn't terrible. Uh, and. <laughs> Yeah, I, Brian, you made me lose my train of thought. I do intermission every week. We took a week off uh, last week because we didn't want to uh, take space for anything that uh, 
mattered. <laughs> um, uh, we we will be back this week. I talked uh, to uh, Roxana Haddadi about Andrew Dominic's "Killing Me Softly" or "Killing Them Softly." Oh my! Yes. <laughs> "Killing Me Softly" is a very different movie. "Killing <laughs> Them Softly." Your desire for self annihilation <laughs> is peaking through again. Uh, and yeah, so that will be out. That will be out very shortly. All right. Excellent. Uh, as for myself, uh, you can find my uh, personal site, Um All over the internet, I am on every social media site that I am presently aware of as at Brian J. Rowan. So if you'd like to see pictures um, from my beach trip so that you can vicariously uh, remember what the sun and the sea look like, <laughs> do that on Instagram at Brian J. Rowan. Um, and, uh, yeah, we can also be found, of course, all of our, all of my writing at thefilmstage.com and every episode of this podcast can be found at thefilmstage.com as well. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and do turn in next time. Until it was a crime.